Wow, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be with you, and this is going to be the easiest turn in your Bible and find it bit in the entire history of the church, because it's basically the very last page of your Bible. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Revelation 22, that would be great. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the series. I, I have. Um, I know if you haven't, there's not a lot you can do about it now, um, but I think it's, it's been a, I hope it's helped you encounter God, and I hope it's helped you see Jesus for who he is, and in many ways, I think... The, the thing I've realized again as I've been teaching through it is how much the book is really John's attempt to hike us back to look at Jesus rather than what we often want to do with it, which is to turn it into a map or a timeline or a set of charts or a period of loads of images and pictures and scary things. And actually John opens the book. Do you remember he just said the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's what he thinks he's done in writing this book. And as we conclude the series, we're going to see he does the exact same thing at the end. He tries to draw our eyes back again to see the magnificence of Jesus crucified and risen and coming back so that we don't lose sight of that in and amongst the difficulty and confusion and often suffering of living life in this age. If you're new to Christianity, I hope it's shown you something of the majesty of Jesus, of the fact that Jesus is good, that he is in charge that he is returning as judge and that that gives hope for our future as well as our present. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll probably have noticed that Revelation is structured around a lot of sevens. You've probably seen sevens everywhere. Um, Some of you are sort of seeing sevens in your sleep and bumping in, thinking, there are seven buses in a row there. It must be the mark of the something. And if you've been in Revelation for too long, that's what happened. Because actually each week in this series has been structured around a seven whether we've particularly highlighted it or not. Week one, it was a sevenfold Jesus. Week two, seven letters to seven churches. Weeks three and four, we saw God, the Lamb, and the sevenfold Spirit receiving sevenfold praise. Then we had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, we had seven visions, seven bowls, a seven-headed beast. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And in this last week of the series, we're going to see again three final sevens. But they're harder to find sevens, so I'm going to show you where they are. And I think that what John is doing by using these sevens is to draw our attention back to the person of Jesus in all his glory so that we don't miss him and his return in and amongst all of the other interesting stuff we've seen in this book. There are seven appearances of the word come or coming soon in this section. And that focuses us on the return of Jesus. There are seven names for the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage, which focuses us on the character or the identity of Jesus. And then there are seven, what I call seven surprises, seven things in the opening paragraph that when you count them, you'd think, wow, I would expect there to be two of that one or five of that, and actually there's only one. Seven surprises, and they focus us on the gospel of Jesus as we conclude. So we're going to go through, the, read the whole thing, and then we're going to draw out what these sevens have to show us about the character and the gospel and the return of Jesus. Revelation 22, beginning at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of God. So seven times in this short passage, we find the word come or coming soon. And the last words of Scripture, the whole Bible, focus our attention on the return of Jesus. John wants us to remember that Jesus is coming back. And so he builds the final chapter around that idea in many ways. And in three of the seven times the words appear, it's the promise of Jesus himself. So three of the seven come from the mouth of Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. It's a promise from Jesus. And Christian hope is bound up with that promise. It's bound up with the fact that Jesus has guaranteed he's going to come back and fix things. So our hope is not that we will somehow figure it out, but that God will come back and make right what only he can fix. And so Christian hope is not shaped like many other views of the world. We don't believe that history works in repetitive circles. We do not believe in a cyclical vision of history, like many, for instance, Eastern religions do. There is a circle of death and rebirth, reincarnation. That's not a Christian vision of history. They don't believe things. The Stoics used to believe it in ancient Greece. They'd just go round and round in circles. The world would get destroyed by fire, then reborn, and round we go. That's not how Christian thinking about the shape of history works. But nor do we believe that history is just a straight line of the up and up, which is a more Western vision in some ways, the vision of progress. 
So what we do is we just get better and better and better, and we figure out more and more problems. Every, our scientific knowledge grows, which is true, but often then that gets mapped onto and morally and ethically and politically we become better and better and better. And a lot of the world look around and go, seriously? And that, that, sort of, that vision of progress is also not a Christian vision. The Christian vision, in a way, is that the world, in Scripture, you see, the world goes on as it always has until God breaks in and changes things dramatically. And so we have a world which is, at the same time, getting better and worse, and some things stay the same, and then God steps in and does something dramatic. And then the Bible happens again and again. So in Genesis 6, the world is an irreparably evil mess, but God steps in and brings a flood. Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and everything looks like it's just going round and round, but God steps in and liberates them. Israel gets taken into captivity in Babylon, marched across the desert, left there for 70 years, crying out, trying to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, but God intervenes and brings them back. Jesus is dead. Women are crying. The hope of the world has gone out. The sky's gone dark. But God, right? But God. That's how, the, that's how Christian history works. And we are in that stage ourselves now. We look at the world, we say, well, that's getting better, that's getting worse, that's staying the same. It looks pretty similar, but God, behold, I am coming soon. He will come back to return, to fix and to heal. The Hebrews talked about shalom, the wholeness, the peace, the reharmonizing of the world at the behest of the God who made it and will come back to save it. I'm coming soon. So in three of these cases, it's a promise from Jesus. I'm coming soon. But then there are another three which come from the church, which are the churches. It's like a call and response. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And the church says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Or the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. In other words, the church takes the promises of God and prays them back to him. Says, you said you were going to come. And we are asking you, our Lord, please come back and make this whole because we're dying here. And that's been at the heart of Christian prayer from the very beginning. It's in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Let your kingdom come. In fact, it's so central to Christian prayer that it's one of the very few words that the people who wrote the New Testament didn't translate into their language, into Greek. They left it in Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke, and many of the earliest Christians did. And none of us speak it today, I expect, and in this room, that anyone speaks Aramaic. But there's that word, Maranatha which means our Lord come. And there were one or two words like that. Like Abba is like that, the word for Father. It's such a heart cry, basic Christian prayer that they didn't translate it. Maranatha, Lord, would you come? Would you return to the world? Would you make right what is broken? It's at the center of Christian prayer. So Jesus makes promises and we respond by praying them back to him. Our Lord come. And some of you are looking at that page and going, the man's an idiot, can't count to seven. There's only six on there, and he's filled up his page, and he's so obsessed with the number seven, he's seeing it even when it doesn't add up to seven. But the seventh one is the one that's not like the others, and it's beautiful, because the church does not just hear the promise of Jesus to return and ask him to return. The church also extends an invitation sideways to the world to come and participate in the joy of the return of Jesus. Verse 17, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you see that the church there is not called to wait for the return of Jesus in a narrow, tribal way? Oh, it's all right, guys. Jesus is coming, and when he does, he'll make it okay for me and my tribe. 
That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is Jesus is coming. He's going to make it right. And now I have an invitation to extend out to the world to say, I want you to come and receive the water of life that I've tasted. I want you to come and experience the joy that will come when Jesus returns to the earth and makes it all well. I don't want you to be outside. I want you to receive it. The water of life is free. Come and drink from it. And so there is a Three promises from Jesus, three prayers from the church, but also a, an invitation to the world to come and taste of what God's done. So the last words of Scripture are focusing our attention on the return of Christ. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised from the dead, and believers will meet Jesus as he returns to the earth, and we'll meet him in the air as he returns to the earth, and then live forever with him on a new earth, with new bodies. Now, now that... Catching up in the air, that's what the rapture is, right? The word weirds people out sometimes. Oh, what's going to happen? Are people going to suddenly disappear while they're flying a plane? That's not the, what Scripture teaches. The, the, the idea is that the, the believers are caught into the air to meet Jesus as he returns to the earth. You can read it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And as Jesus comes to the earth as king, we go out to meet him and then live forever with him and instantly receive new bodies which are imperishable. That means they never get sick. They never get tired or exhausted, or pained, you never sin, and you never die. Your body, in that sense, in the new world, is like Jesus' resurrection body is now. Death no longer has any hold over him. The grave has been undone, right? Behold, I am coming soon. John wants us to see the return of Jesus. But he also wants us to see the character of Jesus, the identity, who Jesus is, not just what he's going to do, but who he is. And in, I think it's extraordinary that in the final chapter of the Bible, we are introduced to seven names for Jesus in one chapter. That's pretty intense name scattering in the text to help us see. Look, look at all of these names for the Lord Jesus. Right? Some of them will be very familiar already, but they are drawn out for us by John in the final chapter of Scripture. First one is the Lamb, verse 3. The Lamb. Now, we might be used to this by now. We're going, yeah, I know Jesus is a Lamb. But allow the shock of it to hit you again if you can. God, when he takes flesh, has chosen to be known as an animal that's like this long, that bleats, that gets fed by three-year-olds from milk bottles in sheep farms a few miles from my house in Sussex. Right? The people, that's what people do. I know it's not so much of a thing in Lewisham, but in where I, where I live, it's like the people do that. They say, all right, let's take our kids to the sheep center and we'll feed lambs. It's an animal you eat for Sunday lunch. And God says, I've become like that because I wanted to submit myself to you as an offering that you might find life in my name. I wanted to be slain for the sins of the world. And so I am prepared to be known as a lamb. It's not, just, it's not a grand divine title when you think about it on its own. It's a very shocking thing to say about the king of the world. The maker of the stars has become a Sunday lunch item because he wanted to be slain for you and as you see the lamb through the bible you see that the scope of the lamb's rescue gets larger in genesis there's a great story abraham where basically a lamb dies for a person and in exodus a lamb dies for a family and then in leviticus on the day of atonement a lamb dies for a nation but in john's gospel john the baptist says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world the lamb's reach has got larger and larger and the lion of the tribe of Judah has become a lamb who is slain and then the lamb has become a shepherd who leads his people to springs of living water and wipes away all the tears from their eyes. He's the lamb. 
The next three names come in a bunch. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And all three of those describe really the eternity of Jesus or the alwaysness of Jesus. That He has always been there. That no matter what's happening in the world with the powers rising and falling and people taking new governments, new prime ministers, right, like this week, lots of people come and go. But the rule of Jesus never changes. That actually the powers of the world, and some of them think they're going to be there a good long time, right? The the empire on which the sun never sets. Or the thousand-year Reich. Or even the end of history. People, I think people, a lot of people think that about liberal democracy. A lot of people think that government systems like ours will always be a thing. I so I don't know if they will be. I don't know if in a thousand years' time people will still be voting. I have no idea what will happen. What I know is that Jesus stands astride every worldly empire and every single one that rises and falls and looks invincible and then goes into the dust and everybody says, what a terrible person that was. I'm so glad we don't think that now, which is what happens to every generation and it'll happen to you and me. Some people will look back at the things I thought and go, how did anybody ever believe that? And they'll think the same about you. And in a sense, I can't control any of that and I don't care because to a point, the only allegiance that I hold is not to the things I currently believe or the way the world currently is, but to the one who stands astride it all the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the O, and he will never change. So as long as I can align with him, I don't need to fear that some other things I'm doing will not always be the way the world is. I can live with that. I want to worship the alpha and the omega, the one who bookends the whole of history. He then introduces himself as the root and descendant of David, which is a weird plant image because it pictures the same person being the root and the shoot of a plant which is kind of impossible. If I asked you to draw it, I don't think you'd be able to do it. As in, how do you get this, a plant where the root and the shoot are the same thing? That's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, in a sense, I come from David. I'm the descendant of David. But in a sense, David comes from me. I'm the root. The, the kingdom of Israel, the Messiah, the rule of, ruler of Israel, ultimately comes from me at least as much as I come from him. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Then he's the bright morning star, verse 16. I never really got the thing about the morning star. Didn't really know what it, why it was a big deal until about six months ago when I was driving into London and looked out. There was a, sort of that you know, very late night. It's just, you're just beginning to... The sun hasn't yet come over the horizon, but it's a, you can feel it's about to. The, there's a sort of glow. And I looked and I saw one of the most beautiful nightscapes I've ever seen, which is where... The, it was just extraordinary at the time because the, the moon was sitting in its sort of crescent like a hammock and then in the middle of the crescent was sitting the morning star, which is Venus, right? The planet Venus is there. And so it, was, it looked like the Turkish flag. You had this sort of crescent moon, and then in the middle, the morning star. So bright, like dazzlingly bright. And both of them were just like this bright white. And I stayed open-mouthed. When I got in the office, I said to someone else on the staff, I'm like, did you see? because they were here early as well, and I said, did you see the... Yeah, it was incredible, wasn't it? The morning star. And I suddenly got what people make a fuss about about this thing, and I, realized, I sort of then began reading up on it and thinking, what, what is the deal here? And the reason why the morning star is so bright is because it isn't a star, it's the planet, and it's a million times nearer us than any of the actual stars are. Right? So if you'd got a scale model, you'd say Earth and the morning star, Venus, are like that close together, and the nearest star is miles and miles away. Right? On a scale model. And you think, this is, this is staggering. So of course this light is much brighter than anything else because it's much nearer. And then I thought, that's just what Jesus is like. Jesus shines brighter. 
He's fairer, he's richer, he's more of an attention-grabbing, glorious presence in the sky of my life, far more than any of the stars that are out there, because he's also a million times nearer to me than anyone else could be. He comes so close, and in coming so close, shines so bright, that he draws all the attention of the earth to the bright morning star. And of course, the morning star is not just bright for its own sake, but it's bright because it is a marker that the dawn is coming. And so the morning star, by rising in the sky, and Jesus, by rising from the dead on Easter Sunday, points to the fact that the new day is coming and the darkness has been overthrown. So there is a new day coming in which the darkness has no power and the bright morning star has risen to signal for us that this new day is about to break. And then the final name is the Lord Jesus, which might sound much more familiar than many of the others. But again, we must remember That all of these names reply to somebody who ultimately is known as the Lord, the King. Right? He's not just the master. He's not just the Sunday lunch item. He's not just the bleating lamb. He is also the master, the boss, the sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So John in this final chapter of scripture gives us seven names for Jesus which pull together some sense of the wonder of who he is and draw us into worship once again. And then finally having given us the return of Jesus and the character of Jesus, there is this opening paragraph in which there are these seven surprises that point us once more to the gospel of Jesus. And this is where I'm going to conclude by looking at the seven times in this paragraph at the start, verses 1 to 5, you find one of something where you might expect lots of something. Right? You might be assuming that there were going to be a whole bunch of these things and actually there's only one in each case. Right? The first is there is only one river in this new world where you might have expected four. Because this new world is modelled on Eden, right? On, the, on paradise from the beginning of the Bible. And so you think, well, there were four rivers in Eden, so there'll be four rivers in the new creation. But no, there's only one. And the river, we're told, flows from the throne bright as crystal. And so the image is as if the crystal sea, which we met a few weeks ago but around the throne, it's as if somebody's punched a hole in the crystal sea and the crystal water is now flowing out from it, pulsing with life and bringing life and healing to everything. As if that which is coming from the throne of God has removed the need for there to be any other rivers of the world and simply one life-giving river that illuminates and enlivens everything around it. And it's flowing through the streets of the city. And ancient cities you sometimes had Trails of water and river flowing through the streets of the city, and it wasn't usually a good thing. It would be sewage. In fact, I've been to a modern city in which that's basically what I saw, just a sort of river of sewage flowing through. I thought, man, this is... Yeah, that's often what happens in worldly cities, but in this case, we don't have a river from human effluent bringing the stench of death. We have a river from the throne of God himself bringing life and removing the stench of death everywhere it goes and instead turning it into life-giving, plant-creating, flourishing life. There's one river. There's one throne where we might have expected two. Look at verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb. And that's a strange image because there's one throne, one seat but two, it would seem, two sitting on it. And it would sound a little odd. You'd think either I'd expect two thrones, or it sounds like God is sitting here, and then the lamb is sort of perched on the side, on the, on the armrest or something. What is this? It just sounds like an odd image, doesn't it? And of course, the point is that the rule of God is the rule of the lamb. The rule of God is expressed through the rule of the lamb. So there's no sense of rivalry here, as if who's really got the throne, or are they next to each other, or do they always agree on every decision? Who gets the casting vote? Is that the spirit's role? None of that. 
The rule of God is perfectly and beautifully expressed through the Lamb, the one who said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I love agreeing with the Father on absolutely everything. Not your will, not my will, but yours be done. That's the way that the God works, that there is one divine will ruling the world, and there is one king, God, in and through the rule of the Lamb. There's one city where throughout the Bible until now there's been two. It's Augustine's wonderful image of the city of God and the city of man. There's always been these two until now. You go back to the beginning, you've got Cain, city of Canaan, then the other city city builders, Seth or whoever. You've got the city of Nimrod, Babylon. And then you've got the city of Abraham, looking to the future. You then get Babylon versus Jerusalem throughout the Old Testament. In Revelation, you have Babylon and Jerusalem working throughout the story until Revelation 19, when Babylon is thrown down, never to rise again, And instead, there is only the new Jerusalem. There is one city. All of the opposition to God, all of the city of man, the opposition to God, rebellion against him, has been thrown down. And there is now only prayer and praise and life. There is one face. Well, you might expect two. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. Whose face? God or the Lamb? I don't understand. And that's a question, this is something that people have been waiting for throughout the Bible. Moses said, I want to see your face. And God said, oh, you don't know what you're asking. You can't see my face. You would die. I'll let you see my back. And throughout the Bible, that's been the answer. You cannot see my face and live until here, when finally humanity, redeemed humanity, gets to see the face of God. And what do they see? They see what Paul called the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They see one face because there is one face, because Jesus' face is the face of God. And as we look at Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. There's not another God hiding behind him who's a little bit scarier and darker. There is the, the God revealed in Jesus, and that is God. And as we look at him, we see his face fully, face to face, as we will be fully known. There is one name where we might expect two or even three, and his name will be on their foreheads. Whose name? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yeah, one name. His name will be on your foreheads. There is one light. So there's no need for a sun or a moon or the stars. They'll be in the background. You, they, might even, they might even still be there. I think there'll still be stars in the new creation, but they're not going to give the light you need because the, all the light you need will come from the throne of God and the Lamb. And there will not just be one light source. There won't be any night either. There'll be no darkness, there'll be no rebellion against God, no hiddenness, no shadowy dark corners where people do think. You know, one of the most chilling lines in the Bible, I think, is when Judas leaves the Last Supper to go and betray him, to to go and betray Jesus, and John just writes, and it was night. That's what people do. They wait for the nighttime, and then they do the darkest, most vile, disgusting things. And John is saying, in that day, there will be no night. No one's ever going to do that ever again. No one's going to betray. No one's going to feel weak and cowardly. No one's going to bring division. There'll be no night. One light. And everyone will see by it. And then finally, and to me most powerfully, there is one tree where you might expect two. So again, you go back to Eden, there are two trees. Tree of life. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the knowledge of death. And you might expect the same two to be in the new creation, but God has swallowed up two into one. And he said, no, now they. See, everybody in the human race has now chosen. Do they want life or do they want the knowledge of good and evil? 
And actually, all of the people in this new creation have said, I want the tree of life. I don't want to know good from evil. I don't want to know evil ever again. I've seen it. I've seen what it does. There was a time I wanted to. I wanted to know what evil, yeah, let's have a bit of that. But now I don't. I know how destructive it is. All I want is the good. I don't want even the option of being able to choose the evil. So there is now only one tree, and the only option you have is the tree of life, and its fruit is fresh every month, and its leaves are for healing. But there is a weird thing about the image, which is where, for me, the beauty comes from which is that this tree, it says, is on either side of the river, the tree of life. And again, if I said, draw that, what would you do? What would you draw? One tree on both sides of the river. Right? In Ezekiel, you've got 12 trees on both sides of the river. Oh, that's fine. Right? There's maybe six on one, six on the other, maybe. That's fine. I can believe that. But how on earth do you have one tree on both sides of a river? Are we talking about like a very weepy, weeping willow or something? What is this? I don't think the image is supposed to make sense in its own terms. I think John is trying to raise for us the question, have all of the trees in the world and all of the fruit that they ever provided, all of the mangoes and bananas and peaches and everything good that's ever been created on a tree, have they all somehow been shadows that are simply meant to draw attention to the one tree that is the tree of life on which the Prince of Glory died? Is there now only, you know, in Luke's Gospel, the cross is called a cross, but in the book of Acts it's called a tree. Because it's now turned from being an instrument of death to a tree of life to which the nations come and they say, this fruit is fresh every month. The cross of Christ always avails for me. And these leaves are for healing. He forgives all of your sins and and, uh, what's the word? Heals all of your diseases. And we all come to the tree to eat and feast and receive good things. And that tree of life has swallowed up all of the other trees in the world. There is now only one. And you and I can come to that tree and find life and find healing for the nations. What the world needs more than anything else in our day on any day is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And actually what the church needs more than anything else is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what John does is he concludes this magnificent book as he just draws our eyes again and again back. says, he's coming back. Look at how great his character is. Look at how marvelous his gospel is. And meditate on Jesus, the Alpha and the O, the Lion and the Lamb. Faced with a vision like this, we're supposed to be called to worship and obedience and prayer. But we're also supposed to be called to call out to Jesus to come back, to return, to take his seat as the one who is greater than it all. And so what I wonder if we could do as we conclude is to stand, if you're able to, and I want to read the last words of the Bible. Do you want to get to your feet if you're able to? And I want to read the last words, and there are just a a couple of words towards the very end which are capitalized and in bold, which I'd love you to read with me as the cry of the church. Okay, so as we, I'm just going to read the last few verses of the Bible, the last words, and then where you see them in capitals and bold, just to declare them together. And let's ask him to come. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Lord, we ask you to come. 
We ask you to come and make right what is broken. We look forward to seeing you face to face. We marvel at you. We worship you. We praise you. And we invite you, Lord. We plead with you to hasten the day when our faith will become sight, when we will know as we are fully known, and when all sorrow and sighing will flee away. Hasten the day, Lord. Maranatha, our Lord, come. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.